You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. It is good to see you all this morning. Um, I recognize that there's probably lots of us in this room that don't know each other yet. My name is Gemma. I am one of the pastors here. I've been out for a little while. I was just on maternity leave. We had twins, Finn and Kit, at the end of January. There is a picture of them because I do need to show you how cute they are. I mean, they were four months old yesterday. Um, I'm not even going to tell you how wild it is getting a family of six out of the house to church on a Sunday. Uh, I'm going to just tell you that only half of us made it. I'm glad I made the cut because I am starting our teaching series today. Um, But yeah, it's a whole lot of fun. So this morning we are starting a new teaching series called Free People, and we're going to be exploring chapter five of Galatians. And this morning I'm going to be honing in on the first five verses in particular, but because we're going to be talking about this whole chapter, and we really want to understand where it fits in the context of Scripture, I want to begin by giving a little bit of context. So we're going to jump right in because of a lot I want us to get through today. Um, So this is a letter um, written by the Apostle Paul. A lot of scholars believe that it was the first book written in our New Testament. Um, Ordinarily, Paul writes a letter to one specific church. Um, In this case, he is writing to the churches, plural, in Galatia. Galatia is not an individual city, but a region. Um, If you read um, Acts 13 and 14, you'll read about Paul's first missionary journey. And on that, he established several churches in the southern district of Galatia. And it's really important to note that a lot of these converts would have been Gentiles. Because whilst Peter and the other disciples were apostles to their own people, the Jewish nation, and Paul, although he was a Jew, his mandate was to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And so scholars believe that the Galatian churches to which this was written would have been made up of both Jew, Jewish and Gentile converts to Christianity. Um, Now, Paul then went back to Jerusalem, and sometime later uh, caught wind that some Jewish Christian teachers had infiltrated these churches with a message that was completely contrary to the gospel that Paul preached. And, you know, these these people would have been known as Judaizers. Um, They considered themselves to be Christians. They certainly wouldn't have imagined that they were opposed to Christianity, but the message that they presented was altogether different. And we'll get to that in a second. But 
Paul is essentially writing this letter to the Galatian churches to remind them of the message that they first received and believed. The good news that Jesus Christ, Son of God, was crucified and raised to life, defeating sin, death, and darkness, and that the Holy Spirit was poured out on all people, allowing people to experience grace and new life and freedom from the enslavement of sin and the enslavement of the law. And so, these Judaizers, like I said, they, they were bringing this message that corrupted that gospel. So what was it? Well, they believed in Jesus, but they believed that salvation was dependent not only in Jesus, but also in Gentiles converting to their Pharisaic form of Judaism, particularly when it came to circumcision and the eating of kosher food. It was what Scott McKnight refers to as a Christ plus something gospel. In their case, it was a Jesus plus Moses gospel that they were presenting. And Paul is really disturbed that these believers would forsake grace and freedom through the finished work of Christ and would exchange that glorious good news for one that required human intervention in order to be acceptable before God. That is why earlier in chapter three, Paul writes, are you so foolish? After beginning with the spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Paul believed that although God's law was good, the era of God's will being revealed through the law was over. And the believers were now, through Christ, invited to live free from the law, guided by the Spirit of God. And so he's telling them, hey, you can't be led by the Spirit of God and the law at the same time. You know, it would be like, you know, trying to drive your car and inviting someone else to drive your car at exactly the same time. You can't have both. And Paul is saying that these are in opposition. And his message throughout the entire letter is uncompromising. Salvation is through Christ alone. And really the entire emphasis of this book is how we live as free people. People who believe in the power of the Spirit and believe and trust in the finished work of Christ. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be digging into a lot of the important themes in this book, such as faith and perseverance, living through the Spirit versus living through the flesh. Now, with all that being said, let's look back again at the first five verses. Of all, we've already heard them, but maybe just even having a little bit more context will help us understand these words from Paul in the first five verses. Um, let's put those up, because actually I think it'd be great if we just all read it together. Will you join your voices with mine? It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, you 
Good job. So this call for freedom is really the essence of this entire letter. And so today's focus is this invitation to freedom. For Paul, freedom is at the very heart of the gospel. God sets us free through Christ and in the spirit so that we can love God and love others. And throughout this letter, Paul uses the language of freedom alongside the language of slavery and enslavement, which I realize given our history may feel like pretty triggering language and imagery for many in this room. For Paul, being a slave to anything was indicative of the things that govern or control our life and our choices. And he argued that bondage to Christ was the gateway to true freedom. So here Paul is firstly making a statement of fact. You are free. You by faith received the good news of Jesus and Christ has already set you free through his work on the cross. But not only is Paul making a statement about the freedom they've already received, he's also speaking about the implications of that freedom. So what Paul is articulating here is that there is a freedom from a particular way of living and there is a freedom for a particular way of living. And the two things that Paul presents in this chapter are freedom from the enslavement of sin or living according to the flesh and freedom from the enslavement of the law. Now, before we unpack more of the specifics in this in the text, I think it's really important for us to begin by recognizing the distinctions between the biblical kind of freedom that Paul is talking about here and our postmodern, even post-Christian cultural perceptions of freedom, because they too will often find themselves in opposition. As modern Western readers, we're always going to collide somewhat with the cultural context of the Bible. And we cannot presume that we inhabit the same cultural world and project our notions of freedom onto this passage. So we live in a time in history when what we most often mean by freedom is a kind of expressive individualism a you-do-you mentality where we all get to curate and self-select our own lifestyle choices based entirely on our desires and preferences. For most people, the notion of freedom is about having absolute control over one's life. This kind of freedom is really all about the absence of limitations and the presence of self-sufficiency, autonomy, power, self-sovereignty. The other day, our three-and-a-half-year-old announced to us with her hand on her hip, I might add, that adults can do whatever they want. Teenagers can almost do what they want. Why can't children do what they want? <laughs> now, you can picture her doing this, right? Um, this was all because we had asked her to eat her snack at the table in the kitchen whilst John and I were able to enjoy our snack in the living room and she deemed this to be grossly unfair and an imposition on her personal freedom. But joking aside, this is really what most of us think freedom is, doing what we want, when we want, and don't even dare to try, try to tell me not to. I remember being at college and having a friend who um, had obviously grown up in a very kind of strict conservative Christian home. And now that she was no longer living with her parents under their roof, 
with a curfew, no longer having to ask for permission for anything. She was going wild, let me tell you. She was free to do anything she wanted, and so she was doing that to an extreme, without any limitation. Maybe you've known this person, maybe you've been this person, and I am not at all opposed to becoming psychologically independent from our parents so that we can become differentiated and responsible adults, nor am I opposed to growing in self-knowledge and self-awareness, because as we grow and mature in Christ, that will always involve knowing ourselves better. Knowing ourselves and knowing God are two sides of the same coin. However, self-knowledge is not biblical freedom. I'm glad we've just got that out there. <laughs> Too often, we get stuck in a kind of egocentric, navel-gazing self-actualization that's actually completely at odds with the kind of freedom that Paul is talking about here. And before we go distancing ourselves from the culture and thinking we're all safe in here inside the church, I think this gospel of like this cultural freedom gospel has well and truly infiltrated the church at large in our day. Walter Leefield, who is a New Testament scholar, has coined this phrase theological eclecticism. And what he means by that is the ways in which modern believers are not really committed to any particular belief system but choose and cherry-pick at will which aspects of Christian theology are not offensive to them. This sense of kind of entitlement exists to make up our own theologies in the same way that we might curate our social media presence and tag our version of Jesus onto the story that we are authoring. But the thing is, when we do this, it's not really the gospel we believe. Its orientation is entirely human. It's a Jesus plus something or a Jesus minus something gospel, not too different from what's happening in the church in Galatia. A.J. Swoboda says, we don't get to love the God we want. True worship is loving the God who is. Whilst our culture would define freedom as doing whatever we want, Paul defined freedom as being a slave of Jesus Christ and his ways. Whilst our culture defines freedom as independence, Paul defines freedom as utter dependence on Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and the work of redemption in our lives. Whilst our culture defines freedom as being in control of one's destiny, Paul defines freedom as the complete relinquishment of control. It's in the words of Jesus giving up our lives in order to truly find them. Whilst our culture defines freedom as refusing to be bound by any external established order or institution, biblical freedom always, always occurs only when we live within God's boundaries. This is the paradox of the kingdom of God, my friends. True freedom is only possible in adherence to the covenant ways of God. The psalmist says, he brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Our Western notion of freedom is most often an external kind of freedom, freedom from external constraints. But the freedom that Paul is describing is an internal, interior freedom that has a very significant impact on how we show up in the world. The spacious place is within us. A freedom not to be bound by the patterns of this world, but to use our freedom to choose the ways of Jesus. So now that we've addressed that, let's talk a little bit about the specifics of what Paul says we are freed from. 
So there's a lot of talk of circumcision in this passage, not exactly my favorite topic of conversation, um, but I actually want to use this as the basis of talking about freedom from the law and from sin. So let's first talk about freedom from the law. In the Old Testament, circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with Abraham, and so all Jewish males were circumcised on the eighth day after birth. Now, the Judaizers are trying to force the Gentile adult believing men to also be circumcised. Paul was a Jew, a Pharisee no less, the most strict observers of the law. So he himself would have been circumcised. And in truth, circumcision itself is not really the issue. Rather, it is their reason for circumcision that provokes Paul. Because if the Gentile believers allow themselves to be influenced by the Judaizers and submit to circumcision, They're essentially declaring that the cross of Christ and the Spirit's guidance are insufficient for their salvation in their daily life of following Jesus. That is why Paul says, if you do these things, Christ will be of no value to you. We read in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Paul is saying we were once captive to the law, but Christ's death redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we could enter into new life in Christ through the Spirit. The Jewish Christians were advocating for a gospel that required works of righteousness to earn salvation and to be acceptable before God, therefore nullifying the gift of grace. Rather than relying on the work of Christ, these believers were attempting to live before God without depending on the Spirit and trying to be justified before God on the basis of performance. And by doing so, Paul argues that they are separating themselves from grace. Dallas Willard defines grace like this. Grace is God acting in our lives to accomplish what we can't accomplish on our own. The law was never going to save them circumcision was never going to make them right before God. And our issue today might not be the specifics of following the law of Moses, but the same goes for us if we engage in any spiritual discipline and practice as a means of being accepted by God. There's a definite place for spiritual practices. We'll get there in a moment. But if any spiritual practice becomes a way for us to bargain with God or try to earn his affection, it will only get in the way of the flow of God's grace in our lives. And we've all been there. I mean, you know, we've all tried to read seven, speed read seven chapters of Leviticus uh, because, you know, on Monday our app told us to read this and it's now Thursday. And maybe God will not like us anymore if we don't catch up on the 13 chapters we've missed. We cannot become like Christ by our own efforts alone. We are desperately, desperately in need of God's grace. So the question really is, when it comes to salvation, where are we placing our trust? Is your faith, in the finished work that Christ accomplished for you? Or is your trust in the things that you do to try and justify yourself before God? Paul writes, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Now here he's referring both to Jewish Christians once again falling under the law of Moses as as a means of seeking the acceptance of God and to Gentile Christians who've been set free from slavery to sin and are now turning to another form of slavery, the law. Now, this word yoke is really interesting because it means a few different things in scripture. Um, A yoke was a device that um, held two oxen together while they plowed a field, and essentially it kind of disciplined them to, to keep at the same pace. But throughout scripture, the word yoke is often used in the context that Paul is using it here, connected with slavery, bondage, or submission. 
Now, in Matthew 11, Jesus says this, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus is saying, submit to my teaching and my ways, and in so doing, you will experience rest. And in a biblical sense, rest is very connected to freedom. Now, in our culture, I'm going to hazard a guess and say that most of us don't really like the word submission. Um, even Christians may become a little prickly when we you know, talk about submitting to anything. But the truth is, we are all yoked to something or someone. The only question really is to what or to whom. When Paul says, do not let yourselves, he's acknowledging that we all have agency to decide what will define and influence our lives. God in his wisdom has given us all the dignity of freedom. We call it free will, the freedom to choose him or not. God will never force his way into our lives. In fact, Richard Foster talks about this as God giving us veto power over our spiritual formation. But he invites us to submit to the yoke of Jesus, which brings freedom and not the yoke of sin or works righteousness, which keeps us in captivity. Now, in the time of Jesus, a yoke was also used to describe taking on the particular teaching of a rabbi. And so when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's, taking, he's saying, take on my teaching, adopt my way of living, multiply this teaching in making disciples of your own. In the rabbinic relationship of biblical times, you know, the disciples didn't say, oh, you know what, I like this part of your teaching. You know what, I'm really down with this way that you live, but I'm just going to stop there and package up my own neat little yoke, and I'll take it from there. It's like what Katia talked about last week when we pray, come Holy Spirit or come Lord Jesus, but you know, don't touch that. I like this part of my life that way. This area over here is out of bounds. And in this passage, it seems to me at least that Paul is saying, you know, some of you would prefer to just circumcise yourselves than to give your whole self, body, mind, heart, and soul to God. But freedom is found in saying, Lord, you can have all of me. Nowhere is off limits. And when Jesus invites us to be his disciples or apprentices, which is what the Christian life is, to take on his yoke, he is inviting us to experience rest and freedom by taking on the entirety of his teaching and his way of living. Jesus himself said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and what? The truth will set you free. Ronald Rollheiser said that Jesus is not after admiration, but imitation. We are to imitate the ways of Jesus, our rabbi, because true freedom is found only in adherence to his ways. Jesus is the master of living. He knew how he got it right. And imitating him is how we become free people. Now, part of what imitating Jesus means is living a life that is holy and pleasing to God, a life of freedom from sin. Now, there's many references in scripture to circumcision. There's also many references to circumcision of the heart. In Deuteronomy 30, we read, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. The heart is the home of our desires, our impulses, our will. 
It is the wellspring of life, and God wants to circumcise our hearts. He wants our hearts to be fully surrendered and consecrated to him because a divinely transformed heart will produce right action. In a few weeks, Patrick's going to be exploring Paul's notion of the flesh. So I don't want to say too much about that today, but I will say that once again, Paul places the flesh in opposition to the spirit. The flesh is not referring to our bodies, as, as Ryan said a few weeks ago. Eugene Peterson refers to living in the flesh as a life of captivity to internal compulsions. It's a life of undisciplined impulses where we use our freedom to gratify anything that our passions desire. It's saying, I desire it, I want it, I will have it because I can. But living in the spirit means that we name our desires before God, but we surrender those desires to the lordship of Jesus so that we can be led by the spirit. It's saying, Lord, I acknowledge that I have this desire, but I will use my interior freedom to lay down those desires for the sake of following you and a living according to your purposes for my life. We are not set free to do whatever we want and live however we want. Biblical freedom has definite limitations. Not everything is good for us or brings us life. In Romans 6, Paul puts it like this. Shall we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Now, earlier I said that we are all in need of God's grace and that we cannot become like Christ by our own efforts alone. But I do want to point out an important caveat. Whilst our spiritual formation is fueled and guided by the Holy Spirit, it is equally true that God invites us to partner with him in his work of grace in our lives. In other parts of Paul's letters, we are called to be co-laborers with God. We are told to make every effort to train ourselves in godliness. And this cooperation takes the form of training our bodies, minds, and spirits in holiness. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. We have to know what we need to be freed from before we can be truly free. No one becomes biblically free until we can accept that we are enslaved to sin and to self and to the world. This means being able to identify and confess the sin and healthy, unhealthy patterns that are keeping us in captivity and preventing us from experiencing the life and freedom that God desires for us now. And then we engage in spiritual practices and disciplines that train us in the way of holiness. There's an episode from The Simpsons where Homer Simpson, who has many vices related to food and drink consumption, drinks a lot of mayonnaise mixed with vodka. And his response to the possibility of regretting this is, that's a problem for future Homer. Man, I don't envy that guy. Um, and we laugh, but isn't it so true that there is often this disconnect from how we're living now in our everyday ordinary life that is really incongruent with the person we hope to be in the future. But our habits end up making us. Our spiritual transformation does not happen by osmosis. There must be intentionality. Dallas Willard famously said, God is not opposed to effort, but to earning. 
There is a unique synergy that is generated when our effort is combined with God's action. But this is altogether different from the legalism that was being pushed by the Jewish Christians that Paul is arguing against. And the litmus test comes down to motivation. I'm all about practices. I mean, I developed the Good Way course. I hope you all do it. But we can engage in spiritual practices until we are blue in the face. But if we hold a false narrative about God, that he needs us to do all of these things to earn his love and approval, we will always engage in great practices for the wrong reasons. We engage in practices from acceptance and approval, not for acceptance and approval. Spiritual disciplines or practices are not holy in themselves. They simply create space for us to encounter Jesus through the Spirit and be made holy. They are a means by which we put on the character of Christ. They are infused with God's grace. So they can change things in us that we can't change ourselves by direct effort. So we have been freed from sin and trying to earn God's approval. What have we been freed for? Well, verse five says, for through the spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. When we say yes to a life of discipleship, Jesus promises that through the spirit of God, working within us to do for us what we could never do ourselves, we will become like him. We will look like him, sound like him, act like our rabbi Jesus. We are freed to become our true selves in Christ, mature sons and daughters, learning to know what God's will is and living as God wants us to live. We do this through the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God's active presence in our lives, animating our lives before God and teaching us the ways of God. We are called to live in and through the Spirit because the Spirit is God's appointed way for people to be healed and restored and renewed and made whole. There is no spiritual freedom without the Spirit. Um, when I went to college in Dublin, I started going along to a church um, where it was radically different from the church that I had grown up in. And there was this very tangible, thick sense of God's presence in the room. Um, the people were worshiping with such passion and expectation and abandon. I had never, I'd never encountered that before in, you know, 20 odd years of growing up in the church. It truly felt like holy ground, but it was deeply uncomfortable for me. Uh, there was always ministry and response time at the end and this kind of invitation to experience life and freedom in the spirit. And what did I do? Well, obviously I hid in the bathroom because I was a little bit scared of what might happen to me if I started to encounter the God that all these people were encountering. And yet God in his grace wooed me and pursued me until my whole life changed from black and white to color all because of the Holy Spirit's presence and activity in my life. In the 1800s, William Booth said this, consider that the chief dangers which confront the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration. I wonder what he would say today. We cannot live the Christian life as Christ intended it without the interactive presence of the Holy Spirit. For where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Amen. So 
So not only are we freed from a life of being enslaved to sin or earning God's approval, we are freed for a life of holiness, obedience through the Spirit so that we can become the person we were always meant to be in Christ. We are invited into a freedom that is for loving Jesus with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul and ordering our lives around a radical adherence to his ways. We are freed for a life of love and service in the world as we co-labor with God to bring about his redemptive purposes. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. There is a vast degree of difference between the counterfeit freedom that our culture promises and the glorious freedom that Christ invites us to. There is a vast degree of difference between an abstract, hypothetical freedom and a lived experience of true freedom in Christ. As I've been um, preparing for today and, and ruminating on this entire book over the last while, there is a particular image that I just have not been able to get out of my, my head and heart. Uh, many moons ago, I won't tell you exactly how long, when I was studying my undergrad in literature at Trinity College in Dublin, um, I wrote my thesis on a number of the American slave narratives. And one in particular that deeply moved and compelled me was called Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl Written by Herself. It was written by Harriet Jacobs. Harriet Jacobs was born into slavery and she suffered terrible, terrible abuse and oppression at the hand of the owner. And she was not able to, to fully escape um, him in that moment. But instead, what she did was she went into hiding in a crawl space under the roof of her grandmother's home. This space was about nine feet long, six feet wide. And because it was essentially an attic, the highest point was three feet. So she couldn't stand. There was no admission of light or air. And she lay in that crawl space, day after day after day, listening to the voices of her children, but unable to see them or touch them for almost seven years, until she eventually managed to escape fully to the north and was later reunited with her family. We've just journeyed through a, a pandemic. We're still you know, suffering from some of those restrictions and we've all majorly struggled with the restrictions placed on our freedom, not being able to leave our apartment, not being able to go to the gym, not being able to dine indoors. This woman lay in a tiny crawl space in the dark day after day for over two and a half thousand days. Harriet was free from her individual abuser, but was she free? And spiritually speaking, I think so many of us live this way. We live with this hypothetical freedom. We've believed in the gospel of Christ. We believe in theory that we are free from, from sin and death. We've got our ticket to heaven after we die. Our, our, we've got this promise of a, a future life, a future freedom, but it has absolutely no bearing on our present day reality. And so we just live day after day in a crawl space when it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Today, there is a fresh invitation to come out from whatever crawl space you find yourself in, whether that is enslavement to a particular sin pattern or enslavement to something that you're putting your trust in outside of complete dependence on the finished work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, there is an invitation to recommit in a fresh way to the implications of the freedom you have received.
to recommit to a life of discipleship with Jesus, of taking on the yoke of his teaching and his way and using your freedom for a life of holiness and obedience and in so doing that to recover your life and who you were always meant to be in Christ, experiencing life and joy and freedom. Jesus wants us today to experience true freedom through him and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Will you stand with me, friends? As the band come up, I just want to invite us to remain present in the room. And to remain present to whatever Holy Spirit is doing in you right now. And that will look different for all of us. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. That's simply just as a way for us to, to be intentional about trying to connect with what God is doing in us. And not be distracted by what's going on around us. You may also, if it's helpful, just want to place your hands open in front of you in a posture of receiving. Because we are just going to wait on the Lord and invite the Holy Spirit to come and move in the room. Come Holy Spirit. We want your wonder-working presence in our midst. We want to taste the freedom that Christ made possible for us. Lord, we confess, all of us, that we have been enslaved to many different things. And today, Lord, we hear your voice. We hear your invitation calling us forward to disentangle ourselves from those things and to step into the freedom that you have for us. I want you just to ask yourself, what gospel am I currently living under? And how is that working out for me? What is the sin that keeps me entangled? What gets in the way of me living in the freedom of Christ? Let's just spend some time in quiet before the Lord and invite Holy Spirit to search our heart. Come Holy Spirit. Maybe there are some of us who are painfully aware of patterns of behavior that are keeping us enslaved. Maybe there are some of us who are realizing that we've been paying sort of lip service to this whole following Jesus thing, but have never fully surrendered our whole self to Jesus. Maybe some of us feel a fresh invitation to a life of holiness and grace. 
Maybe some of us are just recognizing that we're tired and we're striving and we're desperately trying to live this Christian life without the power of the Holy Spirit. Liz said earlier during prayer that this sense that maybe some people just feel like there's a catch. Like, like it just can't be that good. Jesus can't be that good. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to come forward and respond. And it does not matter if you can articulate why you're coming forward or what you need prayer for. Maybe you just have this feeling that you want to repent, but you don't even know what you want to say. Maybe you want a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you want to say yes to Jesus for the first time. All you need to do is to recognize that God is inviting you and simply respond with your body. For some, that will look like kneeling. For some, that might look like weeping. For some, that might look like dancing or joy for the freedom that you've received. And I'm going to ask you to come forward as someone who knows how easy it is to hide in the bathroom. As someone who knows that it can feel deeply uncomfortable to invite God into all of us. But I'm also someone who knows that you will never regret that choice. You will never regret saying yes to all that Jesus has for you. And so as the band begins to play, if you're sensing any even tiny invitation from Holy Spirit this morning, I'm just going to ask you to come forward. something special about us recognizing the activity of God in our lives and the nudge of the Holy Spirit and being courageous enough to say, I don't know what this is going to look like, but I'll take a step. Coming to the front is just taking a step. You might need to take a few to get to the front, but that's essentially what it is. on the prayer ministry team and you're not receiving prayer, I want to invite you to come forward. And if you're on the prayer ministry team, I'm going to encourage you at first initially to not even ask people what they've come up for prayer for. You can just place a hand on their shoulder and you can just pray for freedom because that is all of, all of us are needing this morning. You can just pray freedom, the freedom of Christ, freedom of the power of the Spirit over them. So Jesus, I just want to pray a blessing over my friends who have come to the front, who are sensing an invitation from you to move into greater freedom. 
Holy Spirit, would you come and move? Would you move in power in their lives? Would you release them out of whatever crawl space they find themselves in and into a spacious place of life and joy and freedom in trusting you? Holy Spirit, come. Move in power. And for those of us in the room who are not responding, we're not spectators here. We can engage in worship. We can pray for our brothers and sisters at the front who are seeking the Lord. But as we worship together, we're going to continue to respond. You're invited to freedom. In Jesus.